All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, verses 7 through 11, part 3 of The End is Near, So Live Like This. And these verses summarize the entire Christian life lived in light of the imminent return of Christ. And we're looking today at verse 9. And if you want to get a handle on, on what God wants for your life, if you want to please God, if you want to follow Jesus in a way that could be characterized as reckless abandon, then as, as Peter says, as one chosen by God who, who has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, God who has given you a love for his inerrant and infallible word, God who has given you a love for his people and for all people, you are going to do something that a lot of people are going to think is frivolous and optional, expendable, or just for the specially gifted or generous types. What is that thing? Well, before I'm going to read God's word in just a moment, but look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. You should do... Exactly what that verse says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now cue the shocked disbelief. What? Hospitality? Really? Fixing people meals and giving them lodging? Being a good host? You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. I am serious about it. And by the way, your view of hospitality is short-sighted. It's so much more than you think it is. So take your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4, and if you're able, please stand with me to read God's Word. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. This is the inerrant, the infallible Word of God. This is the Word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces as far as the joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. You know when you go somewhere, by the way, if you go somewhere and, and you start observing things, like let's say you're new to town or you've come back after you know 20 years of being gone out of state and you you move back to California, and you, you look around and you, you notice all these things. But if you've lived somewhere for a long time and hung out with the same group of people for a long time, there are things you miss. You, you forget they're there. And then someone comes and, and points them out to you who's new, and you're thinking, wow, why didn't I see that? And one of the prayers I have for, for today, really my primary prayer is that God would do his work in our hearts in such a way that he would give us new eyes, fresh eyes to see things that maybe we have forgotten about. And, and, and fresh eyes and, and an open heart to, to reach out to people that maybe we, we, have, we have not wanted to reach out to. Let's read the Word of God. First uh, Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Lord God, we acknowledge that you are, you are glorifying yourself through Jesus Christ in everything. We acknowledge that the glory and dominion forever and ever belong to you. And Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, to receive what you have for us today. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Peter is saying, the end is near, so live with a holy expectancy, displaying costly love with a ready hospitality engaged in godly ministry. First thing we saw in this passage is that we should live with a sense of holy expectancy. Verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. The nearness of the sudden, personal, visible, promised return of Christ and our sensitivity to that imminence of his return should have a direct effect on the fervency of our living for Jesus and the gospel. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for a purpose of prayer, literally prayers, All kinds of prayers, alone, in a group, long prayers, short prayers, every kind of talking with God. Pray expectantly that God would do exceedingly, abundantly beyond what you could ask or think. Heart captured by the grace of God in Christ and the shed blood of Christ, anchored in your living hope in Christ. I'm more convinced than ever that we need to focus on our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with one another. There are three one another's in this passage of Scripture. They are very important. First, keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling and serve one another. Last week we focused on verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly. And we saw five aspects of costly love. The priority, the pattern, the people, the price, the power of costly love. Love that never fails. Love that stretches out like a runner stretching for the finish line. It's not an easy sentimental reaction. It's energetic love. It's like a horse at full gallop. It requires every ounce of mental and spiritual energy you have. Loving the unlovable, loving the unlovely, loving in spite of injury and insult. 
Loving when hate is shown and love is withheld. Love in which every atom of, of strength is focused. And you will know if you are displaying that kind of love if you consider it of extreme importance and are willing to be stretched to the uttermost. And if you live like this consistently, and if convinced that love covers a multitude of sins, you protect others from public disgrace. You don't billboard their sins, you shield them, you throw the cloak of love over their shame. And then your relationships are healthy. You urgently seek reconciliation. You don't keep score. A plethora of sins is let go. You forbear, you forgive, you forget. And so relational burdens and scars and grudges don't stick because you have put them at the foot of the cross. Costly love. Calvary love. Well, here in verse 9, we are faced with a command to have a ready hospitality, so let's talk about hospitality. What exactly is hospitality? And what does it have to do with your relationship with Jesus? And why would Peter tell a bunch of suffering Christians to, have, to, to show hospitality to each other without grumbling? And why is being hospitable a prerequisite for biblical eldership? And how does hospitality display gospel truth? I think biblical hospitality suffers from a sort of identity crisis. We put it in a weird, somewhat undefinable category. We think it only has to do with having people over to our homes and serving them hopefully really good food. That's a, that's a prerequisite right there. You can have them over for food. Make it good. And maybe giving them lodging as well. And to be sure, biblical hospitality can and often does include these things. But it is so much more. And so many Christians pull up short on this. They think, oh, it's only for the Martha Stewart types. It's only for people with great resources or huge houses. There's so much more than feeding and lodging people graciously. You take the Greek word for hospitality. It comes from two words that means loving strangers. Philoxenos. It literally means welcoming or loving strangers. I'll give you a definition of hospitality, really two definitions. One is a high-level definition, and one is a, a ground-level definition. The first, high-level definition, hospitality is God's providential care and provision for people through his people. God's providential care and provision for people through his people. The ground-level definition is this. It's God's enabling to share with others, your heart, your home, your life, your personal belongings, and your resources, and here's the catch, without qualification or expectation of repayment or return. 
So they don't have to merit it in your mind. They, they don't have to maintain a certain level of performance or worthiness, and they don't have to pay you back. That's hospitality. I asked one of my kids, I said, how would you describe hospitality? And the answer, I loved it, was, well, like the blank family. They named one of our friends who was, who was the epitome of hospitality. I thought that was awesome. Like that family. I got it right away. The Israelites were, for most of their history, semi-nomads. No permanent place of residence. They, they dwelt in tents. They were wanderers. So they placed a very high premium on hospitality, and it was Highly valued in the ancient world. In fact, it is still highly valued in the Near East. It was a great virtue of love to show hospitality. It was the Old Testament ethic. Exodus 22, verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like. You've walked in those shoes or sandals or whatever they were wearing. Deuteronomy 14, 29. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord may bless you in all the work your hands do. The New Testament began with a failure to show hospitality to Joseph and Mary on the night that Jesus was born, even though the law stipulated that hospitality was to be given to strangers. The concept of hospitality is frequently mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus made it very clear. Matthew 25, he said, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, servant of the church at Kenkri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, biblical hospitality, and help her in whatever she might have need. Third John, verse 5 says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, or these traveling missionaries that were coming through preaching the gospel. It says, it's a, it's a faithful thing you do in, in your effort for these brothers. Strangers as they are, they didn't know them, who testified to your love before the church. He says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. It's pleasing to God. It's good. They have gone out for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In the New Testament, this is, hospitality is a sign of maturity, a qualification for elders. 1 Timothy 3, it is a trustworthy statement 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Parallel passage in Titus says similar. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. But it's not just for the elders in the church. It's for all Christians. It is a general responsibility for all believers. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, and there are many opportunities, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fellow believers. It's especially mentioned hospitality as one of the requirements for widows to be placed on the list for support. 1 Timothy 5. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Hospitality. John Piper made some comments about the history of the practice of hospitality in the Christian church that I think bears mention. He says the root meaning of hospitality is the Latin word hospes, which literally means guests. In the time of the New Testament, there were no such thing as hotels and motels. The only hotels around were brothels. So one of the first practices that the early church set up was the practice of hospitality so that those in the Christian community who traveled, whether for business or for the purpose of preaching and spreading the gospel, they would have safe places to go. By the time of the Crusades, the church as an institution set up official hospices, places where officials of the church could stay a night. When the Crusades happened, many of these were transformed into care centers for the wounded, sick, and injured. After the Crusades, people discovered that they could make a living giving travelers a place to rest, so the hotel was born. Now we have an entire hospitality industry. That's great, but what I want you to to realize and and to really think through and delineate is that biblical hospitality is not for profit. Not monetary, not monetary profit. It's for profit with your relationship with God. It's a good thing, but it is not a business that we are to operate. So after the Crusades, they started making hotels, and many hospices that were set up became places where the church took care of the poor, sick, aged, and crippled. Thus, the concept of the hospital was born. Sometimes we hear a lot of criticism, by the way, don't we? That the church as an institution has done great harm in history. We could easily forget some of the benefits, the blessings that God has worked through the church. And one example that we might take for granted is the gift of hospitals. Hospitality is a fruit of brotherly love. In those days, in the New Testament times, it it strengthened the the bonds and the ties that these churches had together. 
They were often widely scattered in distant places, and even Peter was writing to scattered Christians throughout a geographical region. Without the practice of hospitality, the early missionary work of the church would have been greatly hindered. But it's not enough for us to say, well, there's hotels and, and, and things like that now. We don't need to do this. We read 1 Peter 4.9. We have it. It stands for us today. So how do you practice a ready hospitality? How do you do that? Well, first, let me say that you, you need to get together with other Christians. In your home and beyond. Get together with other Christians in your home and beyond. It's, it's like throwing a pebble in a pond and the ripples go out. Start where you live. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and prayer. And there was awe upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And it says that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as many as had need. It says that day by day they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, it says, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were being saved. New believers. And do you notice what the church was doing? They were sharing. It wasn't just, hey, I got saved. Wow, that's awesome that I was blessed by God in Christ and I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven someday. It was now, we're going to do this life together and, and that put the gospel on display and was lived out in, in very real and tangible ways. And God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Maybe a church that isn't growing by new believers isn't really biblically hospitable. Acts chapter 5 says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. Now for the first 200 years of the church, there were no separate church buildings. Every congregation would have to meet in the home of one of its members. It's not like the church was going to knock on someone's door and say, hey, you're not a part of the church, you're not even saved, but we're using your house. <laughs> you got to use somebody's house in the congregation. But that practice would put their hospitality to a very practical test because people are messy. People track mud on the carpet and draw on your walls with crayons and things like this. My home group doesn't do that. I got the perfect home group, by the way. But you're supposed to get together anywhere to do what Christians are supposed to do. Engage in God's word together. And prayer. And, and fellowship where you share your lives. And then strategize outreach efforts together. That's what our home group's been doing is how can we do something together to reach out with the gospel? But you got to get together, and it's your home plus, your home and beyond. And secondly, you have to meet needs. Meet needs. you got to bless each other by meeting needs. 
Romans 12, when I was a brand new believer in 1982, I read this chapter over and over again. I wanted to be like that. It says in verse 9, let love be genuine. It's interesting that every time you read about hospitality, love is close by and usually precedes because hospitality is, a, is the practical outworking of costly love. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It says rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then it says contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Acts chapter 4, it says that they were all together with one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So with great power, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. It's not a mistake that they were sharing what they had, and there was great power in their testimony for the gospel. It says there was not a needy person among them. Whoever had lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and and look what happened with it. It was distributed to any who had need. Titus 3 tells us that, that we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities and be obedient and be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. I had lunch with a friend of mine the other day, and I was able to say to him, you know, you never talk badly behind anyone's back. That's a really good example to me. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling to be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all people, because we were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. There's biblical hospitality at its pinnacle. Not because of our merit, not because of our worth, but because of his mercy. He poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he says this, and it's not disconnected. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, and I want you to insist on it. Insist on it. What? This. Those who have believed in God may be careful to, do, to devote themselves to good works. It's excellent and profitable for people. It's good. Do this. Do 1 Peter 4, 9. Titus 3.14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The context. Let believers who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ devote themselves to good works because of Jesus so as to help cases of urgent need. I think of Joseph and his brothers. Genesis. They're treacherous towards him. They left him for dead. They wanted him to die. And God, in his providential care, raised 
Joseph up as the second ruler in all the kingdom, put him in Pharaoh's household, and in a famine, his brothers came looking for food. They did not recognize Joseph. He had a different haircut by then. And Joseph recognized them. Can you imagine what was going on in Joseph's heart? And what we see is forgiveness... And provision. You go all the way to Genesis 45 and he says, I am going to provide for you. God had a plan in all this. You see a great example of God's providential care and provision for his people through his people. Here at Grace Orange, we have a caring fund. That's what we call it. And we pool money together to help people who are in financial need. There's a caring team to help people who are in any kind of need. But it's interesting, and by the way, it's been very fruitful and very helpful, but it's interesting that that's not the only time it should happen. Oh, you have a need? Go see the caring fund. People should help each other face to face. Not so they can pay each other back, but so they can show costly love. We have this thing on Facebook called GCO Trade and Recycle, and I love it. For the most part, people give stuff away to each other. Awesome. Sometimes I wish there were less tax deductions for our giving so that people would just help each other out face-to-face. Not so that we could put it on parade and say, whoa, look what that person did for that person, but so that Christians can actually help each other and show costly love. When I read the book of Acts, I don't hear that they put a screen up between the person giving and the person receiving. They just pulled their resources. They didn't, they didn't care. And that happens a lot, by the way. It happens a lot. People just help people face-to-face. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus sets us free from the power of sin. Is that true? Hello? Yes, that's true. And because of that, out of that freedom, Christ sets us free and asks us not to think of ourselves as much, but how we can bear one another's burdens. That's what Galatians 6 says. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And that might seem too much for some people to bear. That might seem too much for some Christians to bear. Except that the God who laid down the life of Jesus for us now empowers us to do the very same thing for our neighbor, to lay down our life. Do you feel dry in your relationship with God? You'll probably find the answer in meeting the needs of those around you. You get into the Word of God, and it's going to point you to that. You got to meet needs. You got to get together your home and beyond, and you got to meet needs. And thirdly, I'll say you got to welcome strangers. I think of the Shunammite woman who helped Elisha. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4. And she had a a little room built so that when when he passed through, he could have lodging and, and food. And her godliness and respect for the word of God is seen in this in this hospitality she showed. She willingly opened her home to those in need. She extended her hand to the needy. She shared the good things that God had given her. Just like Proverbs 31. 
Hebrews 13 says, let brotherly love continue. And do not neglect, this will blow your mind, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You know, there are tons of immigrants and refugees in the United States, and we have opportunity to reach them with the gospel. Just in Orange County alone, 313,000 recent immigrants and more than 300 new refugees in the past year. 192 refugees came through World Relief in Garden Grove, of whom we partner just last year. Hospitality is the most practical outworking of costly love. You clearly meet the needs of others in simple yet profound ways. Now remember this word for hospitality, the Greek word, philoxenos. It literally means welcoming strangers, loving strangers. But here in verse 9 of 1 Peter 4, he says, show hospitality to one another. That's a very unique usage of that word. It literally means love of strangers to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter applies it to our love for each other. Now, we are to show kindness to those we don't know, but how much more to fellow believers that we do know. There's always a need. Our love for one another is a sign of true discipleship. And there may be a special need as the end draws near, a persecution of believers increasing before Christ's return. And any time persecution occurs, when some Christians are losing all they have, other Christians need to stand ready to provide for their needs. So we are to welcome one another as strangers. Isn't that interesting? And how about the ones you think are strange? And by the way, if someone helps you today, don't think, oh, they looked across the room and thought, there's a strange one. Now, sometimes a believer you, you have not met will pass through town. And a trusted friend recommends them, and so it's easy to help them because they come by the recommendation of a friend. I've been on both the giving and receiving end of that. I have been the recipient of hospitality in places like Erie and Jaya, Indonesia, and Nepal, and India, and Estonia, and Germany, and Japan, and South Africa, as well as Irvine, and Orange, and Downey and other places, and I've also been able to have the privilege to welcome strangers and then also be welcomed as a total stranger. And isn't it awesome when you meet fellow believers and they treat you like a long-lost relative? Isn't that awesome? But it doesn't come, by the way, without warning. Sometimes you're the host, sometimes you're the guest, but it doesn't come in Scripture without warning. There is a warning. Be careful. Second John, verses 9 and 10. It's written to a gracious, loving, hospitable church who was vulnerable. They were living in the truth. They were loving the truth. They were loyal to the truth. They were holding to it. But they had to be reminded to protect the truth. It says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So watch yourselves. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And this is all about hospitality. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of Christ, do not receive him into your house. 
and give him any greeting. Because whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. See, the idea back in those days was that false teachers wanted in on the hospitality deal. They would, they would pretend to pr- represent Christ. They would go from town to town and take advantage of Christian hospitality and get a meal and have a, get an offering and then move on. They would undermine the truth. Here's the deal. You are to love everyone. Preach the gospel to everyone. But if someone claims to love Jesus but is a false teacher, don't welcome them. That's dangerous. You don't give a place to falsehood. Don't be deceived. It's interesting, too, that this verse, verse 9, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. What's grumbling? It's the opposite of cheerfulness. It's muttering under your breath that you have to help somebody. I'm really good at this, by the way, and my family could attest to that. You show signs of displeasure because you really don't want to do the thing that you've even agreed to do or been asked to do. But what happens is grumbling cancels out the value of the hospitality given and destroys the recipient's enjoyment of that hospitality. And I understand that true hospitality can be an exasperating chore. But it must be shouldered cheerfully if it's going to be worthwhile. You you can't resent the time and expense that it may cost you. Now, the fact that Peter says this doesn't mean that the people Peter was writing to were big whiners, okay? Or that they were big-time grumblers. It means they would be just like us and have a propensity to get resentful and to grumble. And what is grumbling but ultimately a complaint against God and his ordaining of our circumstances. It boxes out gratitude and joy. You don't want to grumble. So how do you do this without grumbling? It's it's easy, by the way. Very easy to do this without grumbling. All you do is when you get together, you do so eagerly. Eagerly. You want to get together. You don't dread it. You You don't, I realize sometimes you get tired and you need some rest, but On a regular basis, you get together with other believers for God's word and prayer and fellowship and outreach. You do it eagerly. You love to do it. And and secondly, you continually meet needs. This word hospitality here is a plural adjective. So it describes someone who's doing something on an ongoing basis. Hospitality is a repeated practice, not just something you do when you feel like it or when the the, the thought washes over you, and then you say, well, I did that once. It is a regular part of your life, and you meet needs without expecting performance or repayment or reciprocity. And only by placing a higher value on your brethren in Christ than your time and possessions can you show true hospitality. I posted something on hospitality yesterday on our website, and a friend of mine who's in school in South America wrote me and said, he's in med school, and and, and he says, I had a test on Tuesday, so I got up early this morning, I started reading. Around 9 o'clock, a friend called, and he needed a ride for two friends to the airport because his car was hemorrhaging brake fluid. It was super inconvenient, but I felt that taking them to the airport was the right thing to do. I got home just now, opened my phone, and your post on hospitality is the first thing I saw. Life is full of opportunities to show love, even if it's inconvenient, and we can do that 
with a cheerful heart. Cheerful heart. And then I'll say this, welcoming strangers, you got to do it gladly. Gladly. Literally, again, if you're going to love strangers, that's, that's the outflow of the life of Christ in you. You want to eagerly, gladly do it. And it is about motive. It is about your attitude. It is about your mindset. If your world revolves around you, you'll only be hospitable to yourself, and, and that is called sin. If your world revolves around Jesus and the gospel, you will be hospitable in gospel ways and be other-oriented. And all ages of people should do this. Young, old, rich, poor, ages and life stages. Single, married, rich, poor, young, old. Everyone should do this. God's providential care and provision for people through his people. God's enabling to share with others your heart, your home, your life, your personal belongings, and your resources without qualification or expectation of return. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's easy for us to forget. Maurice Roberts wrote, Love is the jewel among the graces of the Christian life. We know it and perpetually forget it. We see the very incarnation of God's love in the gospel portrait of Christ. We behold him as he first washes the disciples' feet and then mounts the cross to wash their souls. But hardly has the memory of this transcendent love faded from our thoughts that we find ourselves reverting to our old habits of self-seeking and self-interest. No wonder Isaiah says, woe is me. No wonder Paul cries out, oh wretched man that I am. He says, why is real Christian love so scarce in the world? It is because it requires nothing less than the reversal of every instinct of our fallen nature. See, love is against the grain of nature. It's against every fiber of the being in our natural heart. But in the regenerate, it's under the higher power of grace. Let every Christian take the duty of Christian love with seriousness. What the unregenerate cannot do, the Christian may and must. We're coming now to the Lord's table. You've probably noticed there was a table up in front. It's an interesting thought, isn't it, that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, but he is the epitome of hospitality. That Jesus welcomed and accepted all who come to him. Still today, to this very moment, to right now. Anyone who comes to him by faith is welcomed and accepted into his family. Being cared for with the utmost mercy and grace. The key to hospitality is not how much you have, but how much you are willing to give. We remember Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we have one gospel message. One gospel message. There is one way to be saved. There is one name, the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other way, there is no other name. 
We're going to hold on to the bread and we're going to take it together. Anyone who doesn't believe in the name of Jesus and trust in his finished work on the cross for their sins, who don't come to him by faith, will suffer the punishment of eternal condemnation, eternal destruction if they die without Christ. What we're doing right now is for believers in the Lord Jesus. If you've trusted in the finished work of Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins and was buried and rose from the dead and is coming back for those who love him, then you joyfully get to eat the bread and drink of the cup. If you do not know him, you can write even right now, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Know that there is no other way. You know, hospitality is a very, very gospel idea. It flows from what Jesus did at the cross. It flows from the shed blood. He wants us to be guests at his table forever. Whenever I come to the table, I always think about David showing kindness to Mephibosheth. After his friend Jonathan died, he, he asked this question, is there anyone, anyone in the house of Saul to which I could show mercy, kindness of God. He said, well, there's this, there's this guy who's lame in both feet, Mephibosheth. It's interesting that in those days it was said, the lame can't come into the house of the king. And David said, he's coming to my house. And he's living in my house and eating at my table for the rest of his life. That's like us. Outside of Christ, unlovable, unworthy. You know what Mephibosheth said about himself? Why would you regard a dead dog like me? We were dead dogs without Jesus. We were without hope and without God in the world. So unworthy of his kindness. Unlovely, unlovable, but God is a God of hospitality and he loves strangers. You know what Peter said? You know what Peter said? You were strangers and aliens. You, you, you didn't have mercy. You weren't God's people. He says, but now, you are God's people. Now you have received mercy. That's why we can come to this table. And remember Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, he said, this is my body which is for you, given in your place. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. We are to show hospitality with an attitude of gladness that we are able to help because we've been shown mercy by God. Christian hospitality flows out of a transformed heart and life. You know, we all, I, think we always, um, I think we always want our hospitality to be perfect. And it's just, it should be a relief, but for the type A's among us, it will be a burden. You have to realize that your Christian hospitality will be imperfect 
necessarily, it has to be imperfect because Jesus is the only perfect example of hospitality. And so our hospitality will come up short, but our best hospitality will bear the reflection of God's perfect hospitality in showing mercy and meeting our needs, his providential care and provision for his people. The reason our hospitality will be imperfect is because we are sinful and flawed. More sinful and flawed than we ever imagined. But in Christ, we are more loved and welcomed and accepted than we ever could hope. Jesus is the only perfect example of hospitality. The cross, the blood, the choosing, the calling, the mercy. Acts 10 says, in every nation... The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Doing what is right is believing in the Lord Jesus. We deserve nothing. We could give nothing. And he gave himself for our eternal life. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Blood was shed for sin. He says, do this and often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we are proclaiming once again the death of Christ on our behalf and his resurrection until he comes again. And we thank you, Lord God, for the privilege because you have welcomed us. In Christ's name, amen.